Thank you for listening to this Waterstone message. Here at Waterstone, our mission is to advance God's kingdom to God's glory. Our current series is called Power and Weakness, a study in 2 Corinthians, where we look at how we experience Jesus' power and grace in our weakness. We hope this message encourages and challenges you, and we would love to see you at one of our services at 5.30 on Saturday evenings or 9 and 10.30 on Sunday morning. A reading from the book of 2 Corinthians. Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I've said that before. You have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have spoken to you with great frankness. I take great pride in you. I'm greatly encouraged in all of our troubles. My joy knows no bounds. For when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within, but God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever." Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while, yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance, for you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you? What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong nor on account of the injured party, but rather that before God, you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this, we are encouraged. In addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was because his spirit had been refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you, and you have not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I am glad I can have complete confidence in you. The word of the Lord. Every week, we include as part of our liturgy a time to receive an offering. And even though most of us give online to support the the mission of Waterstone, we value this time as an opportunity for you to say thank you to God for all the gifts that he's given you. So I want to invite our hosts forward, receive our offering. And I want to remind you again about the cards you received If you could write a prayer request on there, we have a group at Waterstone of over 80 people called the Prayer Community, and they pray over these cards, the requests that come in, every week. 
If you don't have time to finish it now, there's offering boxes on the back wall. You can put them in there. And uh, let us know how we can pray for you this week. And speaking of talking to God, the high point of our worship today comes after the sermon. So I am as anxious to get the sermon done as you are. We are going to pray Psalm 32. And the way to understand the Psalms is that these are words that God himself has given us to talk to him and to connect with him. So we are looking forward to connecting with God after this sermon as we pray Psalm 32, and then we're gonna sing a couple of more songs and worship. One of the new songs is my new favorite. It's a brand new song taken from words of 2 Corinthians, and now you're really ready to have this sermon done. Let's pray. Let us pray over this offering and over our hearts that we put in the bag there. Lord Jesus, you are the most amazing person that we know or can ever know. You are the one who transformed water into wine at a wedding. You are the one who transformed one small happy meal into food sufficient for thousands. You are the one who, by his own power, walked out of his own grave. You are risen. We come to you. We ask that these ordinary gifts that we've given would become extraordinary by the power of your love. May they become healing. May they become good news here in Littleton, Lakewood, Highlands Ranch, Denver area, and globally across the world. May they become hope. And together, we affirm this by saying amen. Let's say amen together. This week, I found out I've been missing out on a global movement of joy. Spark joy. Have you heard of it? How many have heard of Spark Joy, uh, Marie Kondo? Yeah, it's a global movement going on about joy. And what, uh, what Marie Kondo says in her books is that joy comes through having a tidy house. And the way to get a tidy house is just not to go through room by room and start throwing things out. The way to a tidy house, that is the way to joy, is to go categories. You start with books, and you hold the book to your heart, and you say, does this spark joy? If it does, keep it. It's joy. If it doesn't, move it on. Thank it for its service, and get rid of it. Then go to clothes. Then go to accessories. Then go everywhere in your house. Does this spark joy? Now, I think Marie Kondo actually asks a great theological question. Does this spark joy? What in our lives sparks joy? Now, I know that all of us came in here, I think, on various paths in our lives looking for things that spark joy. Some of us know and walked in on the path today knowing that a better version of ourself would spark joy. We're asking those questions. There's a person that I want to be. This is the person I am now. What do I need to do? Do I need to look better? 
work out, get fit? Do I, do I need to present myself as smarter? Read books or cliff notes? Well, what do I need to do? Do I need to accomplish more? Because I want to become the kind of person my dog thinks I am. <laughs> a better version of yourself can spark joy. There's another path that I think we often walk to spark joy. This is the path of, I'll call, others. Others' validation of ourselves. Words of praise, compliments, good job performance review. Whatever it is, words from others that feed this hunger in our souls to know that we matter, that we're known and seen. The problem with that is it is a spark. I mean, who of us doesn't enjoy a compliment? But if you begin to feed on those and those alone, boy, it can create a monster. You'll be fishing for those everywhere, and when you don't get those words and compliments, you will sulk. We remember, we talk a lot about this at Waterstone, that no person in spite of a good movie, no person can complete you. If you put that kind of pressure on another person, you will kill the relationship. So while we get sparks of joy from words, we're careful because those are not the throbbing source of joy that we might need. And that, but there's another path. I think sometimes we look for joy uh, from just good gifts, like a good meal. I mean, who doesn't feel joy cutting into a good steak? It's been seasoned and cooked, well done, and put right in. Well done. Read the Old Testament. <laughs> a glass of wine that crisp on your tongue. Who does not enjoy a gift? How about the gift of apocalyptic sex? Who doesn't enjoy that? I mean, these gifts we have in life, and they give us a moment when we realize, wow, this is good, joy. But what's the problem with those kinds of joys? They're elusive. They don't last. It seems, I mean, you can look forward to something, a good meal for a whole day, maybe a few days. You look forward to it, you eat it, you're done. It's like, is that it? When's the next one? They, they come, they go, and even in the midst of them sometimes, there's a little shade of emptiness in it because we've built it up so much in our mind and we get there and it's just not giving us what we wanted. C.S. Lewis, he talked about joy and how elusive it is. He, he talked about it being like it's an echo of a song that we haven't yet sung. It's like the scent of a flower that we haven't yet seen. By the way, especially those of you who've come today who are searching out this Jesus thing and Christianity and those of you who are not yet believing in Jesus, we are so glad that you're here and we really hope you feel welcome. You honor us by even sitting through all this with us. We're glad you're here. But one of the things to, to, to consider is this guy, C.S. Lewis, one of the things he began, you, you might realize from his story that he was an Oxford professor and an atheist. 
But he began kind of this journey to God because what he began to see was the way that some of his Christian friends like J.R.R. Tolkien, Charles Williams, the Inklings, they began to have a different level of joy. For Lewis, the joy was elusive. You experience it, but the joy terminates on the experience. It's done, you move on, next day. But he began to notice that some of these other Christians that he was hanging out with, they too would have the joy, a good meal, whatever it was, but then they would have this double joy. The joy compounded because he noticed that they would start to say things like, thank you, God, for the gift of taste, for the raw materials of food, for the the gifts of flavor. They began to experience this joy of a meal, but the joy didn't terminate on the meal. It actually compounded into another joy, which we know as worship. And even the worship was better than the joy of the meal. And Lewis began to think, "I I gotta figure this out. And it led him to God, and searching for God, it. It led him to Jesus, because if you want to know God, Jesus tells us who God is, and Lewis became a follower of Jesus. And guess what the name of his autobiography was? Surprised by Joy. Today, my prayer over this sermon, as you hear it, and when we get to the end and talk to God, is that you too would be surprised and re-surprised by joy, because our text today is loaded with joy. If you look at the beginning of our text in verse four, my, Paul says, my joy knows no bounds. You get to the end of the text, I'm glad. It's actually the same word. I'm glad I can have complete confidence in you. And even in the middle, there's joy. This text is saturated with joy. So we wanna talk about Paul's joy and extract some things from it that I think do more than spark joy but can help us live in joy. But before we look at the letter, just some background. Every week we're unpacking a little bit more of the story behind 2 Corinthians. Every letter in the New Testament has a story behind it. And the the Corinthian story began, and you can read about this in Acts chapter 18, 50 AD, the apostle Paul walks in with a team, Silas and Timothy, They walk in from the north to this ancient Greek city called Corinth. Now, as we talked about last week, does anyone remember who was here last week, the nickname of Corinth in the ancient world? Shout it out. The Vegas of the ancient world. Las Vegas of the ancient world. Corinth that sat on the coast. It was known for wealth and celebrity glamour and sex. That was what Corinth was, and that's why you would go there. And what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. That's Corinth. Paul walks into this city with his missionary team because he believes all people, no matter where they live and who they are, need to be reconciled to God. And so he walks into the synagogue. That was his practice. God told him to go to the Jews first, and so he would go into the synagogue. For 18 months, Paul and his team would go into the synagogue, and they would set up uh, the, the booth, the lectern, and they would proclaim that Jesus has risen from the dead, and he's the Messiah, He's the king you've been looking for. Near the end of the 18 months, an understatement would be the Jews were getting upset. And they want Paul to move on. But what happens is just before that happens, the leader of the synagogue, a man named Crispus, he decides 
Paul's right. And he makes a decision to make Jesus his king. And he gives him his full allegiance. Can you imagine? The leader of the synagogue and his whole family believe and are baptized. And that's like the gauntlet is, is burst open. And it says many more now believed and were baptized. And guess what? First Christian church of Corinth. Paul has to move on to the next city because people need to be reconciled to God. He leaves elders and some leaders in place. One of them was Timothy. But after Paul leaves, Timothy sends Paul a report that, hey, these new believers in Jesus, they're really struggling. I mean, who wouldn't struggle? We're always trying to struggle with how much of our culture is in us and how much shouldn't be in us. They were struggling with sex in this church. They were struggling with glamor and celebrityism in this church. They were struggling with how much money they should or should not give. I mean. There was a church in Corinth, but the question was how much of Corinth was in the church? And they were struggling with that. And one of the other things they were struggling with, frankly, was Paul. Because Corinth, living in a celebrity culture, they had this glamorous picture of a successful pastoral profile. And Paul did not fit. I mean, Paul, he was poor, he was a tent maker, he supported himself, he didn't take patronage. He, he was uh, short not physically attractive, he, his lectures were a lull, uh, his letters were weighty and heavy, and when Corinth thought of a pastor, they thought Paul was the anti-pastor. And there was this friction, this tension between them. And so where we find 2 Corinthians is, over a five-year period, Paul has written four letters trying to deal with Corinth and some of the issues they were having. For instance, one issue in chapter five of the First Corinthians letter was a man was having a public affair with his stepmother. So Paul, after First Corinthians, writes the painful letter, the third letter, which is in between First and Second Corinthians. We don't have it. Have I lost you yet? There was four letters. We have two. In the middle of the two we have was this painful letter where Paul writes and says, you got to deal with this situation. Your church is not healthy. He confronts them. And it hurt them. So Paul's waiting in Macedonia. He doesn't want to visit them again until Titus comes. Titus delivered the painful letter. Paul's waiting for Titus to come back and see how Corinth responds and see how their relationship's doing. That's where we pick up in chapter 7 today. Now, we're going to see Paul's joy. And we're going to extract three um, things, principles that he was holding on to that gave him joy, a lasting joy. The first one we're going to call the joy of forgiveness. Notice in our text, it says, make room for us in your hearts. In other words, Paul still wants partnership. He still wants Corinth to be in uh, the mission with, together with Paul. And then he goes on to say, I've said it before that you have such a place in our hearts, we would live or die with you. So he wants partnership and he's still committed to Corinth in spite of the way they've treated Paul. Imagine in spite of the way they've treated Paul, Paul says, you're my partner, and I'm committed to you, life or death. And then he says in verse four, I take great pride in you. That word there is actually the word boast. I'm boasting to Titus. I'm boasting to the other churches around the Mediterranean cradle. I'm boasting about you. How does this work? This church has drastically underestimated and mistreated Paul, but Paul says, I want you as a partner, I'm committed to you. In fact, 
I boast to you. What brings those two things together? The joy of forgiveness. You see, Paul understands that every church and every person is a mixture of pluses and minuses. Now we know that in Christ, we are clothed in righteousness. We are glory bound, that already our sins are forgiven. We are children of God. We know our future glory self. But the problem is, we're not there yet. We're a work in progress. Our job is to help one another remember that the only opinion of us that counts is God's. And what's God's opinion of us? Righteous and forgiven. That's how God sees us. But we also know that we're works in progress. So we have to continually remind each other we're children of God and this is who we are. Pluses and minuses brought together. We keep people integrated as pluses and minuses. Can I talk about that for just a moment? Number one, everyone you know will disappoint you, especially those with whom you live close. Everyone you know will disappoint me. Why? We are pluses and minuses on our way to heaven, but right now a work in progress, so we keep that integrated. Our tendencies, whether it's in politics, whether it's in sports, whether it's in church, whatever it is, our tendency is to have those people we hugely respect and we look at them and say they're all pluses and they wear a white hat. And then when they fall, when they make a mistake, when they disappoint us, what? They're black hats. Whew. Paul could have done that with Corinth. He did not. Why? Because he keeps people integrated. We are all pluses and minuses and we have gray hats and we walk around this church, nice gray hat. I know who you are, you're a child of God, God's opinion of you, but I also know we're all works in progress. We keep people integrated. How do we do it? We practice, for, here's the joy, we practice forgiveness. Paul is here modeling what he said in places like Colossians chapter three, when he says, bear with one another. Integrated, bear with one another. Forgive one another, how? Just as Christ has forgiven you. Do you know what that means? That means, some of you need to hear this this morning, listen to me. If you are refusing to forgive another brother or sister, or even someone else, maybe even outside, the church, if you are refusing to forgive, you are actually refusing to forgive someone that Christ has already forgiven. not to mention that he's forgiven you. So Paul feels this joy towards Corinth because he's practicing forgiveness, bearing with one another, forgiving as Christ has forgiven us. That's the first principle of joy. Does that spark joy for you? Second spark that uh, sparked Paul's joy. It's in verses five through seven. We came into Macedonia, we had no rest, we're harassed, conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, and this is emphatic in the original language, the, the word order puts God first. But God, so God's gonna do something here to comfort Paul. What's he do? He comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Not only by his coming, but also the comfort you had given him. Paul 
joy happens when he sees Titus. Not only for the news that Titus brings, that the Corinthians had responded well to his painful letter and even responded well to Paul, but even more, Paul indicates, just having Titus with me in Macedonia. In other words, the second spark of joy for Paul is friendship. He had a friend in Titus. We all need a Titus. I want to remind you of something the theology of friendship. Listen, Genesis 1 and 2, back at the beginning, everything's good, the planets are good, the trees are good, the sharks are good, everything's good, 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 good. And then we get to chapter three and we say not good enough and we disobey God and ruin everything. But in chapter two, before chapter three, when everything's ruined, in chapter two, do you remember there was one thing that was not good? Do you remember what it was? Shout it out if you remember. He was alone. Adam was alone. He went, you know, named all the animals, zoo time, and then it, he's alone. And, it, and God says, it's not good that man is alone. Now, Think with me, stay with me. This is, I think, really interesting. Adam felt loneliness not because he was imperfect. He felt loneliness because he was perfect. In other words, the only ache in the human heart that's not caused by sin is the ache for friends. So if you're here this morning and you're lonely and you wish you had a Titus, you wish you had a friend, you wish you had more friends, I'm telling you that that desire is there not because you are weak, not because you are wrong, that desire is there because you've been made by God. And that is a perfect longing to have Friends. Remember who made us. We were made by a trinity, by a friendship. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, friends loving each other from all eternity. Friends made us in his image to long for friendship. That's the theology Friends. So that begs the question, okay then, I need more friends. What do I do? How do you make friends? This is what's interesting about Paul and Titus. Before Jesus, they would have never been friends. I mean, Paul was a Jew, a Pharisee. He wouldn't have sat at the same table with Titus, who was a Gentile. They would have never crossed paths. But they both met Jesus. Jesus gave them this overwhelming experience of grace and forgiveness and then called them to mission. And it was the mission that bonded their friendship. I'm suggesting to you that that's the best way to find friends. The bonding of mission. Here's the way not to find friends. You don't go up to someone, put your hands on their shoulders, look them in the eye and say, please, 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 would you be my friend? That won't work. Friendship is found not eye to eye, but shoulder to shoulder. You want friends? Get in a group that's on mission 
and working together shoulder and shoulder, friendships will form. That's how you find friends. In the church, it's why we're so naggy, naggy to you about getting into a small group. You are not part of this church until you're in a group. You, you need to get in a group not because you'll get all your needs met in a group. You need to get in a group so that you have people to serve. The mission of our groups is to serve the people in the groups. You get into a group so you have 12 people in your life to whom you can be a priest. That's why you get in a small group. You're on mission and on mission, meeting the needs of other believers, equipping them, caring for them, you form friendships. But it's also true outside the church. You want to find friends? Get on a sports league. You serve on a nonprofit board. Get involved in mission, ministry, play, whatever it is. Find friends shoulder to shoulder. And there's joy. So Paul's joy comes from learning to forgive. Paul's joy comes from learning friendship. There's a third extract of joy that sparks for Paul. It's in verses eight through, uh, I think we're just gonna read eight and nine. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Isn't, I love this. This is one of my favorite sentences of Paul because you can see he's wrestling here. I, I, I'm sorry I caused you letter, but, but I'm not sorry, but, but I am I am sorry. <laughs> He's really wrestling with the pain that he's causing a church. I do not regret it, though I did regret it. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Paul's saying there's a third extract of joy. Here's where I also find joy. He's saying sometimes joy comes from honest conversations with other believers, and sometimes honest conversations about your church. Paul's really wrestling with this because he knows that he had to confront this situation in Corinth and basically tell them they're not a healthy church, and he had to wait and see how they were going to respond to that. And he says that in that, there's joy in that if you respond in the right way. And notice he has two different ways that Corinth could have responded. One he calls worldly sorrow, which leads to death. Or they could respond with godly sorrow that leads to repentance. You know, each of us in this room has those same two choices when we too are confronted with our mistakes and our shortcomings, and may I say it, even our sins. When we are confronted with our mistakes and failures, we have a choice how to respond. Same choice that Corinth has. Worldly sorrow or godly sorrow. Let me unpack them briefly. Worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is when you're confronted with a sin or a mistake, and you keep it horizontal. You don't bring God into it. Doesn't matter. God it's just horizontal, and you keep it self-contained, or I might even use the word, if I push hard on this, uh, self-absorbed. Worldly sorrow is horizontal and self-absorbed. In other words, it's like your children. <laughs> you all have children, right? I have children. Did you ever wonder when you were like disciplining your children and giving them you know, some consequences for the things they've done, if they really felt sorry for what they did or if they really felt sorry for what was about to happen to them? 
Sometimes, maybe a lot of times, our children are more sorry not for, you know, defacing the family values, but rather for the consequences that they're about to experience. You know, the same is true for us adult children. Sometimes with worldly sorrow, we are much more concerned about the consequences of our sin than we actually are about what we've done. We're upset that our wife's upset with us or our, our husband. We're upset that our children are hurt by what we've done. We're upset that our boss is mad at us. We, we get upset about all around it, all the consequences. And so, what do we do? Well, that's the worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is at least three things. Worldly sorrow, for either one, tries to ignore it. Ignore what you've done. Ignore the sin. Just pretend it didn't happen or let's just move on. They minimize it. They, and by the way, we, we live in the perfect age to do this, right? Because you have a screen in front of us all the time. We never have to have a moment of self-reflection. Never. We live in the age of diversion. The age of not having to do much gut work. Let's just be distracted all the time. There's that extreme or Others go to the other extreme where all they can think about is what they've done and it kills them, it absorbs, it's death. By the way, the idea of death here is not the idea that your heart stops. The idea of death is that it separates. And so choosing worldly sorrow separates you from friendships and relationships and important things in your life. It's separated. So you jump in fully. The more you think about what you've done, the more it consumes you and eats you. I mean, a classic example of this is struggling with substance abuse, alcohol. You're so ashamed that you have this struggle with alcohol, and you say, I'm going to work, and I'm going to beat it, and I'm going to get better. But then the pain comes, and the shame comes, and then what happens? Well, to, to cover the cause, you you drink again, you drink more, you need to numb the pain, and it's this vicious downward spiral. Same is true with pornography. Same is true with many of the sins with which we wrestle. We cover the cause with more of the same. So we either ignore it or, or we obsess over it and it becomes an addiction, or there's this middle ground where we blame one another. You know, we, we're called up, we're caught short, and uh, by the way, I'm an expert at this. I've never had to be taught this. It just like happens naturally. But the, the idea of blame when I'm confronted with a sin is more, well, if you wouldn't have done that, I, I wouldn't have done this. Because you did that, that's why I did this. It's these tepid, like sickening apologies you often hear from politicians and celebrities and athletes that say, well, I'm sorry if what I did offended you. What kind of a thing to say is that? That is not an apology. That's blame. That because of you who are you are, you're, you're upset with me, that's because you're wrong. You know, this blame thing, we are natural born blamers. Goes all the way back to the garden, right? Adam, what have you done? Well, it was Eve. If you wouldn't have given me her. Eve, what have you done? Well, it was the serpent. Natural born blamers. Worldly sorrow, we keep it horizontal, we're self-absorbed, we don't want anyone to know about it, it's breaking us apart, it's breaking relationships, leading to death, but we ignore it, 
or we're addicted to it, or, or we blame. Worldly sorrow. No joy, by the way. No joy. Godly sorrow. What is godly sorrow and how does it bring joy? Godly sorrow is at least three things as well. First part of godly sorrow, when you're confronted with something you've done wrong and you've, your fault, you see it. First part of godly sorrow is vision. And you thank God for pointing out the fault, the rebellion, the sin. You thank God for it. Because if you don't know about it, you can't fix it. If you don't know about it, you don't know that you're hurting people. First part of godly sorrow is vision. You remember the prodigal son? He goes to his father, wants out of the house, doesn't want the love of his father, just get me out of here, I'm done. Gets the inheritance, leaves, women, prostitutes, I mean prostitutes, wine, all this. Famine comes, prices go up, he's out of money. He finds himself picking through pig slop for kernels of corn and eating when the most beautiful sentence in the New Testament comes. When he came to himself. When he came to himself. What's that? Vision. Sight. He realized the love of his father. He realized what he had at home. He realized his choices were wrong. When he came to himself. Vision. You know, one of the reasons you come here on our, our, our gluttons for sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon. It's because you too understand that the word of God is a surgical instrument. It cuts, Hebrews says, it, between bone and marrow. It's like a, a scalpel that cuts open the places in your life week after week after week where you know the healing needs to go, where you know there's rebellion, where you know there's cancer. It opens those up, and you're sitting here thinking, oh, Larry, like, some of you say to me after sermons, that hurt. And I wanna say to you, for it wasn't me. <laughs> the word of God, which is why we're so committed to preaching the word of God chapter by chapter, is because it does the surgery. But it begins with sight, and then it goes on to venting. The second part of godly sorrow is to talk about it. First to God. In uh, uh, Psalm, what is it there? I forget the reference. Go, yeah, Psalm 32. Then I acknowledge my sin to you. This is David talking about after his great sin with Bathsheba, and then killing her husband, one of his mighty men, to cover it up. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. We vent vertically. We bring God into it. God, I'm so sorry for what I've done. You saw it. You know it. All these horizontal sins I've committed were against you and you only have I sinned. Every sin is first a sin against our maker and our Lord. And so we go vertical and we confess it. But we also go horizontal, even in saying this, uh, in, in Psalm 40, I'll let you read it, but David talks about going before the great assembly. We not only confess our sins vertically, but we confess them to one another. We just acknowledge in our small groups, people that have relationships, people that call our faults out, we acknowledge. What made David a man after God's own heart was not that he could kill giants, 
was not that he was you know, a, a great warrior or a great leader. What made David a man after God's own heart is that whenever he was confronted with his sin, he responded by saying, I have sinned against the Lord. His heart had this gospel elasticity that would snap back to his posture and position in front of God. I have sinned against the Lord. He confessed it to God. He confessed it to one another. I need to tell you that this whitewashed, superficial, pretty, suburban Christianity has got to die. This kind of posturing that we do with one another in events like this where we walk around thinking, giving off vibes that I'm farther along on the journey than I really am, giving off vibes that say I'm really not struggling like I really am. Are you as weary of that as I am? This needs to be a place where people can bring their secrets where they can bring their sins and with another believer say, I have sinned against the Lord and I've sinned against this church and I've sinned against people and I need help. And what the, the posture is, me too. And then we say, we are forgiven. Can we be a place of less posturing? <laughs> can I say this? And more sin. Luther said, sin boldly. He didn't mean go out and rebel against God again. What he meant was when you sin, own it. Have courage. Tell people. You will not make progress on your sins by yourself. Felix Culpa, Augustine said, happy sin. Until you say you're a sinner, there's no forgiveness. Sorry. I, I, where did that come from? <laughs> Third part of godly sorrow. See, vent, change. Zacchaeus was a wee little man because short people rule the world. <laughs> Jesus went to him, had dinner. Zacchaeus rocked. He was a tax collector. He stole from people. That's what he did for a living. He meets Jesus, and he's so compelled by Jesus, he begins to boast about Jesus. Jesus just changes him. And what does he do? He gives back fourfold. Now, even in the Hebrew law, whenever you stole with someone and got caught, the penalty was seldom to pay back more than twice. Zacchaeus is doing four times. Why? Not because Jesus said, I command you to do this. Not because Jesus said, here's your penance. He's doing it because he's so full of joy that he met Jesus that his heart's changed. And he has to give that generosity away that he's received. You see your sin. You vent it. And you're changed. You're changed by the joy of forgiveness. Paul's joy extracts Forgiveness, friendship, repentance, a changed heart. Do you want a changed heart?
You know, you have a decision to make right now. We're going to put it on the screen, this decision. Christian joy is a profound decision of faith and hope in the power of Jesus' own life and love. You have a choice to make about Jesus. Will you invite him to your table? Will you give your life to him? Will you ask him to change your heart? The decision you have is for joy, to trust in the power of Jesus for the rest of your life. Because when you do, you begin to understand that joy means mercy triumphs over judgment. Life conquers death. Sins are forgiven. Life is eternal with God. You do the hokey pokey on your grave, that's what it's all about. <laughs> that is joy. It's yours if you want it. I'm going to ask now that we pray these words of Psalm 32, a confession to God that leads to joy. Sit there, you don't have to do this, only if you want to do it with your heart to connect with God, no matter where you are, to connect even deeper with joy. We're going to uh, pray this together, and then we're going to have that new song, and you just sit there and soak in that new song. The new song is called, I Will Boast in Christ the Lord. It comes right off the table of Zacchaeus. <laughs> he was changed so much that he had to boast about who Jesus was. Was And we want to boast. We want to point to him like the best man giving the toast at the wedding. We will boast about him. Boast and we'll sing. Let's talk to Jesus together. I'll, I'll do the leader part and you do the all. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from the trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go, and I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart.